Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Welcome back to Podcast Royal. I'm Jessica, and Rachel and I are coming at you today with a surprise Friday bonus episode. We recently had Christopher Anderson back on the podcast for a second time, and we interviewed him on his new book, The King, The Life of Charles III. I hope you enjoy it. Check it out. Just when we thought we'd read everything there was to read and knew everything there was to know about King Charles III, veteran royal biographer, and I think we were just talking about this a moment ago, our very first ever second time guest on Podcast Royal, Christopher Anderson swoops in with his latest, The King, The Life of Charles III, which is out today, November 8th, as we record this. This book is revelatory, compelling, and the first full-length conversation we've had about the king since he took the throne on September 8th, which was actually two months ago today, now that I say that date out loud. Christopher, welcome to the show, our very first ever member of the Second Timers Club. Well, thank you. I am honored. Do I get a blazer or something? <laughs> well, that's like, I know where you're going. That's SNL, Saturday Night Live. and that, I think that's the Five Timers Club. So got, well, okay. Three yeah. more books to go. So that oh would make it an even 40 books for you. Well, I'll start, I'll start writing now. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, we're so glad you're here. Oh my gosh, this book is so juicy, so good. So I want to start with perhaps a question maybe that you haven't been asked yet. We'll see. This, this to me was one of the most powerful lines of the book. You write that a nagging question to Charles was always, always, Will they love me like they loved her? I don't know why that line just stabbed me in the heart, referring to, of course, the adoration people felt for his mother, Queen Elizabeth, which, of course, she is such a tough act to follow, and his first wife, Princess Diana. Will they love me like they loved her? How has this question plagued the king's life? The childhood of this man is just uh, it's heartbreaking, you know? If you look at the way he was raised, the way he was isolated, really, I mean, people see or remember this the last few years uh, when the queen was had an affectionate relationship with Charles and and uh, the um, you know, there was a warmth there. But that was not their relationship for almost his entire life. I mean, you know, from the from the very young age, one one little episode sums it up. And I think that is. Uh, when he was four years old and when Charles was four years old and his mother went off to uh, on her first tour of the Commonwealth for six months and she came back, uh, gets off the ship and he runs up to greet her and she pushes him aside. And, you know, not now, d darling. And, and then when he finally gets his time with her, she reaches down and kind of robotically shakes his hand. I mean, newsreels of that show that she's treating him like a 45-year-old man. Charles always said his mother was aloof, cold, 
you know, his father was uh, bullying and um, actually reduced him to tears on, on an almost daily basis throughout his young life. He only spent 15, two 15-minute 15 uh, sessions with his parents growing up. You know, he had a 9 o'clock session and a 6 o'clock session. The nannies brought him in for 15 minutes, and that was it. Um, so, of course, you'd end up feeling um, abandoned emotionally, I think, if your parents treated you that way. They sent him off to school, or he was basically physically and emotionally tortured, you know, uh, at Gordonston, this Scottish boarding school, um, begging to come home and writing tearful letters and breaking down constantly. Uh, parents said no, you know. So when you go into adulthood with that kind of uh, emotional damage, baggage, uh, yeah, you're going to wonder why people love you or if they love you, you know? Yeah. Well, Dr. Anderson speaking there. <laughs> <laughs> well said. To go off on that, you know, the king is described in the book as being the loneliest human being on earth. Can mm -hmm. you can you explain that for us? Well, right, exactly. I mean, I think that he felt uh, he's always been looking for uh, love. You know, the British have a, 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 a word called, uh, they call a person who complains constantly, a, a whinger, which is their version of whiner. And the one thing Camilla has done throughout their relationship is to always kind of center him. You know, I think he feels that she's one person that he can lean on and trust uh, to tell him the truth. Um, but uh, let's face it, I think in his kind of search for himself, uh, you know, he caused a lot of chaos in his marriage to Diana. And uh, he really, because he insisted on this relationship with his mistress, Camilla, really brought the monarchy to its knees Now, at one point. Now, of course, uh, fast forwarding to uh, Diana's death, I mean, he, he kind of rescued it then. But um, no, I think he, uh, in, in essence, he really is a solitary figure, but that makes him interesting. I mean, the queen, you knew who she was, you know, she knew who she was. She was not a complicated person. It was all duty and country and the position she was born into. Uh, Charles is very different. He's had to wait 70 years for this job. And in the course of that 70 years, you know, he's kind of shaped his own destiny to a greater extent, I think. And that's why I, like, I think he's the, the thing I like about him is that he's not you know, I mean, yes, the Queen's fa had a fascinating life, but he's always been there, too, for those 70 years that she mm -hmm. reigned. And, uh, has, through, you know, we've seen the scandals and the tragedies and uh, and the great moments as well. So, you know, in, in essence, he's provided a lot of the drama in, in the royal story. That is one way to put it. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. So I'm, I'm wondering, from the unique vantage point of being his biographer, how do you think his first two months on the throne have gone? Has anything surprised you? Well, no. I mean, he is, uh, well, <laughs> I think in the first few moments, we got a, a, a look at his flashes of temper, which I write about in the book. He really <laughs> has a phenomenal temper. Um, you know, I write about the time that he... Uh, uh, you know, lost a cuff link and went down the drain and he pulled the sink right off the wall. Uh, another time right. when he tried to, he tried to strangle his valet, about chase the valet into a closet, uh, you know, uh, through a chair, through a window because it, the window was stuck and he couldn't get it open. And that was at someone else's house. Uh, well, here we go to the moment he becomes king and I, you, everyone saw it when he sat down to sign those papers a few weeks ago in Scotland and the uh, aide hadn't cleared the desk 
quickly enough, and he just had a little hissy fit there that everyone saw. I mean, he, he really has to get, you know, get, con he has to, if you, you know, if you can't control your temper when you know the world is, the entire planet is watching, uh, you have a problem. So um, that was one thing I thought was fascinating. Interesting. Mm. Well, what was an anecdote or two that made your jaw drop about the king during your research of the book? Well, you know, the book was the five years in the making. And in essence, I, you know, I completed the bulk of it uh, a while back. And then I've, I've been updating it, as you know, constantly. Right. <laughs> and uh, including all of the turmoil with Harry and, and William and whatnot. One of the bombshells in the book, though, is uh, really how Camilla has become queen. I mean, we have a situation, well, just a little context here uh, for those who don't remember that, you know, the queen. I mean, uh, Camilla, when Diana died, you know, Camilla became the most hated woman in the realm, if not the world. Everyone mm -hmm. blamed her for Diana's death, uh, in essence. And uh, she basically went into hiding. It took eight years after Diana's death for, for uh, Charles to convince his mother to let him marry Camilla. Um, they had to get down on their knees in front of the Archbishop of Canterbury, if you recall, during that ceremony at Windsor and, and say, you know, they apologize for their wanton and wicked ways. Um, but, uh, you know, he said that he, he would never make Camilla a queen. That was one way he kind of bought the approval of the public. He, she would be princess consort. I knew from the get-go that that was not, he would, had no intention of keeping that promise, but as recently as, oh gosh, less than a year ago, he said she will never be queen. She's going to be the, um, princess consort. He's sticking to it. Well, along comes in early, uh, earlier this year, um, the uh, Andrew, Prince Andrew uh, uh, Epstein affair, and uh, he needs money to pay for the, his uh, civil settlement in that sex abuse scandal, and the Queen is willing to pay it. But Charles uh, has always been opposed to the Crown getting involved in, in uh, Andrew's personal problems. The Queen's favorite child was Andrew, um, always. Uh, and there was a kind of an unspoken quid pro quo in which Charles... Uh, remained silent. The queen was allowed to pay, um, you know, the $14 million settlement or a big chunk of it. And, uh, and she issued a statement, not so coincidentally, that she finally backed Camilla as the future queen consort. Um, I think uh, it's one thing to say that's going to happen. And it's quite another thing to watch that crown being placed on her head during coronation on May 6th. I, I think it's going to rub people the wrong way. And he's yeah. going to have a crisis. He's gonna have a crisis on his hands, at least of public support, because the polls have, you know, even after the Queen issued her statement, and and um, you know, Camilla was, you know, her popularity shot up from fourteen percent to a little less than fifty, I think, and now it's starting to sink again because the Queen's no longer around uh, to issue any kind of support for Camilla. Um, so we'll see what happens, but I think Camilla is going to be his first big um, problem to deal with. That and of, and of course, uh, before that, he'll have to deal with uh, um, Harry, Harry's book, which is coming out early next year as well. Yeah, he's got he's got a one, two punch. Uh, well, actually, a one, two, three punch of the crown season five, which comes out tomorrow as we record this. Then he's got the book. Then he's got the docuseries and, you know, all of this before the coronation. And that's only that's only up until January. Who knows what's going to happen from January to May. And I, I really don't think we can understate what you just said, that unspoken deal between her late majesty and Charles to give Camilla her queen consort title. That is a bombshell. 
piece of information. And it's, you know, you, you, you've said this in other interviews that I've read, you've had since uh, you've been doing publicity for this book, that statement kind of came out of nowhere. It wasn't, it was, it was unprompted and unprecedented and actually was the weekend of the 70th anniversary of her taking the throne. And I remember being stunned by, by that, but now it makes a lot of sense on the back end. Right. February 6th was the day was the, that she made the announcement. You're right. It was the, the, the technically the 70th anniversary. It's the anniversary of her father's death. So it's the anniversary of her becoming queen completely out of the blue. Harry and William were blindsided by this. For some reason, they actually believed their father when he said, he, you know, out of respect for their mother, uh, Camilla would never be queen. And by the way, they're already working behind the scenes on removing the consort from everything. So it would just, mm-hmm. and she will be queen Camilla. I mean, in the future, she said that is what her title will be. Um, and uh, Camilla is a very complicated person. All she ever wanted to be, as, as you both well know, was the king's mistress. You know, she never intended to be queen, I don't think. Yeah. And that uh, sort of fell in her lap. So I think she's going to be shaking like a leaf uh, when uh, during the coronation, uh, if it goes ahead as planned. And there's a big controversy even about the crown, as you know, that she would wear because mm-hmm. uh, she's supposed to wear the Queen Mother's crown, but the Queen Mother hated Camilla. Um, and there's a problem with the Kohinoor diamond, which is the, one of the most famous diamonds in the world that's set right in the middle of the Queen Mother's crown. And India claims that it's worth half a billion dollars. So, you know, if she's uh, crowned with the Queen Mother's crown, you know, Camilla will be offending the biggest country and uh, the crown will be offending the biggest country in the Commonwealth, India. So that's yeah, still very controversial. We actually yeah. talked about that on a recent episode. And so it's just, I just still, I'm just still sitting here thinking, what if I would have told you 25 years ago as you were writing The Day Diana Died or whatever book was going on yeah. 25 years ago that this would all be happening? But I want to back up for a minute to Charles's childhood. So as a child, the king you've touched on this already today, never really felt like he belonged. He has a delicate nature, um, but he also had a mother who was not good at showing affection and a father who was just about as much of an alpha male as they come. So how did his childhood shape the man we see today? Well, he made the, it made him this solitary, lonely uh, figure. I mean, you have this little boy who's uh, really the only person or people he can turn to are really three people, the queen mother, who was a very affectionate grandmother and defended his sensitive side. Don't forget, as you said, the alpha male, Philip, saw this as weakness and uh, and really was, uh, you know, uh, uh, very dismissive and even abusive toward Charles, um, felt that he was a weakling. Uh, you know, at one point, even as an adult, the queen, when, when he got very, when Charles uh, got very emotional because one of his... Uh, the um, young uh, uh, naval personnel who were under him when he was serving in the Navy briefly, this fellow was killed and he was very emotional about it. And the queen said, oh, really, dear, you must toughen up, you know. So in the family, he was always thought, thought, thought of as a soft soul. And the queen mother defended this. She thought he was very sensitive and creative. Uh, Lord Mountbatten, who was his like surrogate father, um, but really his great uncle, also supported him emotionally and and of course, Mabel Anderson, his wonderful nanny, who is still alive, uh, is, uh, I think she's the same age as the queen, um, you know, was another emotional support. But outside of those three people, uh, he really had to fend for himself. And, and he, I, so he's a loner still to some extent. And I think, he, like you said in the very beginning, he's very 
uh, very conscious of the fact that his mother was deeply loved by the British people and he doesn't know, and that Diana was as well, he doesn't know why people don't see his accomplishments, you know, in the world of philanthropy and that sort of thing. Well, the reason they don't is because he doesn't, he doesn't have that kind of magic touch that Diana did, very few people do. And uh, his mother, of course, just by virtue of the fact that she was there and a, and a kind of a rock for the British people for so long, I think that's why there was that affection for her. You know, you, you mentioned uh, 25 years ago, I can go back to 1977 when I went to the, uh, I covered the um, Silver Jubilee, or, uh, you know, the, marking the, uh, the Queen's 25th anniversary on the mm -hmm. throne. And I, remember, I remember the I was sitting right in the Westminster Abbey for some reason, I'm against the royal enclosure there. And so very, very close to the royal family as they come down the aisle. And uh, then, of course, it's before Diana. So sure, everyone was very impressed by the whole bunch. You know, they were all there. But uh, it was a kind of a waxworks feeling, a kind of a stuffiness to the royals at the time. I think it was only the injection of Diana into the picture and all the chaos around the, uh, the marriage that really, um, you know, breathed kind of a new life into uh, and, and, and Diana's personality, of course, breathed new life into the monarchy. So, uh, but again, Charles is always the kind of the outsider, the person who isn't the focal point of everyone's affection, and he still feels he needs that, and he does need it to be king. He really needs he needs to win over the people in a, in a very real way. Well, going back to Camilla for a second, uh, you you've touched on you know she sort of saw herself in this mistress role with maybe not a desire to be queen. And I was stunned in the book to read that as a bachelorette, she once said, I'm holding out for a king. So I'm curious, was Charles always in her sights from the beginning? Oh, gosh, yes. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, Alice Keppel, her uh, uh, great grandmother was Edward VII's mistress, so close to Edward that Queen Alexander, when, when Edward VII was dying, Queen Alexander called Alice Keppel to his bedside because she knew that was the woman the king really loved. This was a story that um, Camilla was told since early childhood. As early as 10 years old, I talked to schoolmates of hers who said she talked about it when she was a relatively young girl about her great, with great pride, the idea of being the king's mistress. Um, and that wonderful line that you just quoted where she was, uh, all of her, her roommates when she was working for a brief time, you know, all aristocratic young women, don't forget Camilla is the granddaughter of a baron, was born into that world. Um, you know, she was holding out for a king and she meant it, but she didn't mean she was, hope, you know, holding out for the, for the, the throne. <laughs> she didn't think she was going to get right. queen. She would, she would be content with, with um, being the mistress. And, and people don't realize that it was really Camilla who picked out, along with Lady uh, Tryon, Kanga Tryon, who picked out Diana from the list of 10 young women they drew up as uh, suitable, you know, wives, potential wives for Charles. Well, one of the biggest tragedies of Charles's life was in 1979, Lord Mountbatten was assassinated. Right. Just one of the most devastating events of the king's life. Can you describe their relationship and the effect his death had on Charles? Well, you know, Philip, it's funny because Lord, Lord Mountbatten, of course, was a kind of a father figure to Philip, who was a, raised as you know, almost a feral royal, if you will. He had no real family. He was born into the, uh, you know, he was a prince of Denmark and Greece and all of that. 
but um, very problematic his mother and father. So he was left to his own devices. And, and Lord Mountbatten, a great figure in British history, um, he, uh, you know, Mountbatten of Burma, hero of World War II and all of that. But um, he, Mountbatten was a, a grandson of Queen Victoria as well. Uh, he became a mentor to Philip, and then uh, when Philip kind of stepped aside, uh, and he didn't, he didn't seem to have much interest in uh, Charles, mentoring Charles, um, you know, Lord Mountbatten stepped in. So when Mountbatten was assassinated, it was, uh, and I remember seeing Mountbatten in, on Fifth Avenue in, in New York, back, just right before his death. And, oh, wow. You know, well, yeah, what if I was just walking, I, what a figure, you know, he's huge and, and everyone, very, very legendary character from from uh, the, the World War II era, particularly, but, um, and a opposing gentleman. But uh, yes, I mean, it was as if he'd lost his own father. So uh, that was a, a moment, and Diana, of course, recognized how uh, that, that Charles was grieving. And it was that moment uh, when he first encountered her uh, sitting on a, bale of hay, you know, <laughs> and talking to her for their, one of their early meetings uh, that she expressed her um, understanding and, you know, she could see the, the pain that he was going through. And that, I think that did touch him. I think there was some emotional appeal there in the very beginning. She was in love with him, I think, from the very, you know, from the outset. And, and uh, she wanted their marriage to work. But famously walking down the aisle of St. Paul's Cathedral. She looked over and she saw Camilla sitting there with in her gray dress with her pillbox hat and veil and Tom standing on the chair, her little son, Tom uh, Parker Bowles, standing on the chair next to her. And, you know, she felt, Diana felt like she was a, a lamb to the slaughter. You know, she saw that this was not going to work, that Camilla was very much there still in Charles's life. So very complicated. Well, I want to talk about that for a second. It's difficult to discuss a biography of the king without mentioning Princess Diana. And although we know the love of his life was obviously Camilla, do you think there was ever a moment where Charles and Diana's marriage had a real fighting chance? Well, you know, there's that famous interview where, you know, they said, you're very much in love and the whole world, he said, whatever that, whatever love is, you know, I mean, it's. And that's the time I would have called off the engagement. <laughs> right. That's right, exactly. You know, and there's a look on her face. Oh. But, you know, uh, I don't know that there was ever a chance because he was smitten with Camilla. When Camilla went off and married Andrew Parker Bowles, he was devastated, you know, mm -hmm. and, and went through this period where he was uh, with all sorts of women. I described this. <laughs> This, this polo playing friend of his, you know, kind of lining up uh, young girls for Charles. Uh, you know, he was uh, kind of uh, at loose ends there for a while, and um, and Camilla was no longer, you know, really as available as you know emotionally and every other way as she would have liked, I suppose, as he would have liked. Um, so yeah, he's always felt moments of abandonment, I think, and. Uh, I, th I think he feels that now very deeply uh, because of Harry and Meghan. I mean, I think they've really, uh, he, he feels very betrayed by the situation there. The fact that, uh, you know, he's receiving all this criticism from the Sussexes. You know, I have to say so much ado has been made about Diana's panorama interview with Martin Bashir, but we can't forget that it was Charles who struck first on sure. the TV wars, if you want to call it that. He, that was Diana's interview was in 1995. Charles appeared in 1994 with Jonathan Dimbleby in the documentary, Charles, the private man, the public role. So um, what effect did this have on 
Charles's reputation. This is the interview where he admits that he'd been unfaithful uh, after, right. what did he say? The marriage had irretrievably broken down or some something like that. So what effect did the Dimbleby interview have on his reputation? Oh, it was, it was just devastating. I mean, uh, it was a huge mistake and for him. And of course, it really uh, damaged his relationship uh, with William and, and Harry. I mean, William was uh, distraught and Diana had to go and kind of uh, explain to them that these things happen and try and calm them down. But, you know, William, it's, I think one of the great ironies here is that it was always William who stood up to Charles uh, as a uh, as a boy and as a, even as a teenager. And, you know, why are you making mummy cry? I uh, at one point he said, you know, Charles just said he never loved Diana very publicly. And and um, and, and William uh you know, said, I hate you, daddy, I ha or papa, I hate you, I hate you. Uh, and now, you know, fast forward 20 years, and he's uh, probably the strongest supporter and ally of, of Charles, because they both, of course, have the monarchy that they have to support and, you know, uh, preserve for William in the future. But uh, yeah, that was a very big mistake. And by the way, the however it was obtained, we have to remember the Bashir interview. Uh, and they were also there was all sorts of inexcusable behavior on the part of uh, you know, the journalists and, and getting that, uh, landing that interview, the substance of it is true. You know, what she was doing was telling the world what had happened uh, very in a very, I think, a very honest way, uh, you know. So we, that was a, a, a landmark interview in, in that regard. Can't dismiss what was said during the interview. And, and the efforts to never broadcast it again are a big mistake, I think, because it really offers a window into the, the whole situation there. It's part of history. Well, I was shocked to learn that Charles was almost in what could have been a deadly car accident right before Diana's own fatal crash. Oh, yeah. Can you tell us about that? Oh, sure. Well, I mean, not only that, I mean, I, in the book, I do describe the number of times he cheated death, you know, I mean, uh, more, relatively recently, uh, Charles uh, revealed that when he was a student at uh, Trinity College in Cambridge University, he uh, was riding his bicycle and was struck by a bus and just felt like the hand of God somehow, you know, saved him. He has no idea how he survived, he said. Um, at one point, he, when he was doing parachute training, you know, in the RAF, because the future monarch always goes through all the various services, um, he, uh, his feet got tangled in the lines of his parachute and he was upside down and he only righted himself at the last minute. Uh, you know, if he, if, if he had been killed in either one of those instances, we'd be talking about King Andrew. I mean, that's the kind of twist. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Did everything. Uh, and later on there was an assassination attempt. Man jumped on stage and fired a gun in Australia. Uh, that was in the nineties. Uh, he, uh, uh, just two weeks before Diane. Oh, and there, oh, he's almost killed in an avalanche um, that, in, yep. you know, mm -hmm. that, that killed his friend Hugh Lindsay. And then um, just two weeks before Diana died, uh, his car uh, you know, went out of control in Mallorca, Spain, and almost went over a cliff. So it could have been Charles who, who uh, was killed in a car crash within, as I said, two weeks of Diana's death. Um, and, and I also write about the, um, the hit, well, I wouldn't say hit and run, but it kind of is <laughs> the, the accident that um, Camilla was involved in, a car accident uh, in which somebody was, uh, you know, that could have also been a catastrophe. But again, uh, a lot, lot goes on behind the scenes that people aren't aware of. Yeah. 
listeners, yeah. when we said the book was revelatory, we we meant it. And so here's a couple of quick facts um, that I learned from the book. Well, I kind of knew some of them, but that were reinforced in the book. Charles is a workhorse. As you mentioned earlier, he has a volatile temper. He has a mm-hmm. bit of an Eeyore disposition. He had yeah. a crush on Barbara Streisand. Interesting. Um, I learned so much from this book, but in addition to the Camilla queen consorts, Prince Andrew payoff, quid pro quo deal. I was kind of honestly shocked to learn that in the book, it was revealed at least in the beginning, Camilla was not a big fan of Kate Middleton, the, the then Kate Middleton's, which oh, no. shocks me because I feel like Kate is so universally loved. They obviously seem to get along fine now, but what was behind that? Well, you know, uh, you've got to remember that, you know, Camilla, for all of her earthiness and loving country life and fox hunting and gardening and all that stuff, she is an aristocrat. She is a bit of a snob. I mean, if she's going to be the mistress of the king, everybody else, you know, had better fall into their place uh, historically. You know, uh, the king's wife, the future queen, must then be someone of position. And, uh, you know, Kate Middleton, she's a true commoner. I mean, she's descended from... uh, you know, her, her uh, forebears were coal miners. Her mother lived in public housing. They lived in public housing for a while. Her mother was a flight attendant, famously self-made woman, um, and, uh, Carol Middleton. And, um, but she's not the kind of person that would have been suitable, quote unquote, in Camilla's eyes for a future uh, queen. And so, um, you know, she whispered in Charles's ear at one point, I was in, I'll tell you, I was in London at the time. And of course, uh, Kate and, because in 2007, Kate and William had been together for years. It was only a matter of time before, you know, any minute now, we all expected them to announce their engagement. And Mm -hmm. boom, they split. And nobody could figure out, it was this earth shattering moment there, I remember. Uh, I actually had to update a book at the last minute uh, to uh, take uh, that into account. But it was because she had whispered into Charles's ear, Camilla had, that uh, maybe he ought to suggest to William that uh, either he break up or propose. And of course, William chose to break up at that moment. And they got back together within two weeks because Kate was so savvy about how to lure him back. You know, she just mm-hmm. uh, went out there and lived her life and dated other people and was having a wonderful time. And William couldn't stand it. So, but I agree with you totally that that uh, Kate is fabulous she's the best person for that job and that family and and uh, i think she'll do she's she'll do a remarkable job when she she becomes queen i agree well, speaking of family members getting along as the expert here how is the relationship between charles and both of his sons today well william of course is is uh, they're a very strong bond still there's no problem there uh but uh harry remains this uh, ticking time bomb and i I think when you look at how Charles and the royal family embraced uh, Meghan Markle and and uh, Charles in particular, I mean, he walked her down the aisle, or believe the second half of the aisle anyway, uh, when they when she got married to Harry. Uh, you know, Meghan was close to the Queen at one early on. I remember the wonderful train trip they took to uh, Northwest England. They were laughing and smiling, and getting along famously. Uh, Charles befriended. Doria Raglan, Megan's mom. Uh, so all of a sudden we have this, you know, guy jumping ship and, and in essence kind of uh, making these accusations about racism within the family. 
um, I think there's a strong sense of betrayal. It really plays to Charles's sense of being a victim, as you said, the Eeyore thing. Why are they doing this? Why is he doing this to me? Um, and he, Charles did extend some branches, olive branches, uh, over the past year or so. But I would say right now, it's relationship is at an all-time low. There was a chance during the Queen's funeral for everyone to you know, bury the hatchet, but that did not happen. And you could see it hadn't happened from the way, from the looks on Charles, on Harry's and Meghan's faces uh, during the whole episode. I was really shocked, by the way, that in the beginning of the funeral, uh, during the various ceremonies uh, toward the beginning of the funeral, it, Harry was not allowed to wear his uniform, as you know, probably noted. Andrew was, Edward was, who's never been in the military. I mean, if anybody in that family deserves to wear a military uniform, it's Harry because he's served for 10 years in the army and in combat in Afghanistan. Um, eventually, Harry was allowed to wear his uniform for that vigil of the grandchildren around mm -hmm. the Queen's coffin. But it was obviously there was some, uh, you know, consternation on Harry's part uh, in the very beginning. And they always looked as if they were shunted aside, you know? There was no connection between uh, the Sussexes and the Cambridges that I could see. So um, right now it's uh, it's pretty bad. And I just think it's gonna get worse, the relationship between Charles and William on the one hand and uh, Harry and Meghan on the other. Well, our last question for you, again, we could talk to you forever. This book is so good and it closes with charles knows better than anyone that his reign will not be a long one uh -huh. bookended by the most admired and longest reigning monarch in history and a dashing young prince who is heir to the mystique of a martyred princess i i really love that turn of phrase charles can hope only to win the people's affection with his particular brand of quiet dignity old world charm and new world activism so we're two months into hopefully 10, 15 year reign, something like that of King Charles III. What is your prediction for the reign of King Charles III? Well, you know, I think uh, one mistake people make is to assume that he's going to be a placeholder for William, that he's going to just keep the throne warm, as it were. He's going to be an activist, as I wrote, and he's going to you know, leave his mark on history. I mean, he's just waited so long for this moment. Only you know, Edward VII waited 59 years, but this guy, uh, Charles, waited 70. Um, he, uh, I think, is going to take the bull by the horns in terms of streamlining the monarchy. He's already talked about uh, kind of redoing the way the monarchy is funded, if he can. He's going to, I'm sure, express his opinions uh, in private to the prime minister every week, which he has the right to do. Um, and, you know, I think he'll just, uh, but unfortunately, he may be overwhelmed by scandal. You know, I mean, he's got to find the way, the, the key to... Uh, uh, his reign is going to be um, winning the affection of his people, but that's hard to do when you have, you know, a rebel prince in uh, in Montecito uh, and, and princess, uh, you know, constantly making headlines and uh, embarrassing revelations. So that's something he's going to have to handle. And also the, the reaction to Camilla. Camilla still is a very controversial figure. Um, I think uh, will be some time before the British people really warm up to her in the way that, you know, that Charles would like. So we'll have to mm -hmm. wait and see. We don't have to wait long, though. I think Charles is going to start making waves very soon. Well, The King, The Life of Charles III is out as of today, November 8th. 
Christopher, we love having you here. You are welcome back anytime. Anytime you write a book, consider it done. Thank you oh, so cool. much for being here today. Thank you. I can hardly wait for number three for uh, the third third time's the charm. <laughs> Do I get a blazer then? <laughs> we'll give you a blazer on three. We'll, we'll call okay. it a total blazer moment on three. Thank you for exactly. being here. It was Thank great. You. Thank you very much. Well, I learned so much during that interview, and we always enjoy having Christopher Anderson on the show. Thank you, Christopher, for joining us, and thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Please be sure to follow us on Instagram at Podcast Royal. Email us at hellopodcastroyal at gmail.com. And be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcast. We always welcome a kind review. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye.